Following Jesus primarily happens in the context of three relationships. Relationship with God, with the church, and with the world. Healthy relationships are not defined by a to-do list. Instead, people follow regular rhythms that develop and deepen their relationships. There are rhythms that connect us to God, helping us understand who He is and how we can become more like Him. There are rhythms that build our relationship with the church, growing and connecting with one another. There are rhythms that build our relationship with the world, helping us make an impact on those around us with the gospel. Introducing Three Relationships, a simple, powerful model for making disciples. Well, this morning, we're going to look at three relationships, our discipleship methodology. A number of years ago, we adopted this particular approach. And I want to tell you, as I've gotten into it and I've learned about it, I appreciate it more and more. First of all, it's an easy to understand way to understand what we're called to do. It also keeps us from oversimplifying what it means to live as a disciple. Living, a disciple, living as a disciple doesn't mean you just connect with God and you and Jesus are okay. You've got to be in connection, but not just go to church and perform duties there. You've also got to be building relationships, participating, partnering, being present in the community. And so the model reminds us that we live out our Christian faith in at least those three spheres. And what we're going to do this week and next week is to take a look at Christ in the Word, God in the world today, God in the church next week. Well, that raises an interesting question. Okay, how are we going to do that, Charles? How are we going to look at God in the world? Well, we have a whole lot of data. In fact, the whole Bible is a message about God in the world. Well, that's too big of a text for us to work at in the morning. Um, and so let me tell you, I cheated a little bit. Every year for a number of decades now, I read through, I've adapted Robert Murray McShane Bible Reader, which you read through the Old Testament once and you read through the New Testament and Psalms twice every year. Now, it just so happens as you follow the McShane Reader that you read the Gospels to end every year and you read the Gospels to start every year, which means I'm concluding Matthew now because I'm kind of at the beginning of the year. And so what I've done these past couple of weeks is to say, okay, how does God and the world, how do those themes show up in Matthew's gospel? And interestingly, those two themes are kind of like the main threads of the whole book. It's as if Matthew intentionally wrote his gospel to help us understand about God and the world. Now, we don't have time to walk through every place those themes show up, but I do want to mention a few of them, and we're going to kind of fly pretty quickly over them so you're going to have to hang on with me, all right? Matthew begins his gospel with a genealogy. And you may say, well, he's not very bright then. Who in the world would begin their book with a genealogy? After all, who's going to hang in there long enough to read the rest of the book? Well, a genealogy in the ancient world was actually like a resume. And so if you're applying for college, if you're applying for a job, if you're applying for a new job, you send your resume. Now, in our culture, you send your resume because your resume highlights your individual achievements and accomplishments. 
And that's what you're hoping you're going to get hired or you're going to get, or you're going to get admitted on. That's not how it worked in the ancient world. In the ancient world, your individual accomplishments, your individual achievements weren't nearly as important as what family you came from. And so everybody in Matthew's day, when they started reading his gospel and you got this long genealogy, they would not have been bored to tears. They would have been sitting on the edge of their seats wondering who's in the list. What's this person's family like? Where did he come from? It just shows how cultures change things. Well, anyway, in that genealogy, we're going to see God and the world show up pretty prominently. Now, I'm not going to read through the whole genealogy, and you hear me mess up all the names. Um, I am going to read the first verse, because in the first verse, you pretty much get what the rest of the genealogy says. First of all, Matthew begins, This is the genealogy of Jesus the Messiah, son of David, son of Abraham. Now, if you were here Christmas Eve, you know that we talked about Jesus and Messiah. Jesus, his name means God saves, right? And just like in the Old Testament, Joshua led the people into the promised land. Jesus, the new ultimate Joshua, he leads us into the ultimate promised land. God saves, that's his name. Christ is not his name. That's his title. And what does Christ mean? Anointed. Who gets anointed? Kings. And so Matthew begins the genealogy by saying, I'm going to introduce to you our Savior, who is the King of the world. That's how it begins. And all of a sudden, the people are, "Uh uh-oh, we need to listen. What are the next two things he says? He's the son of David. Now, who was David? David was Israel's greatest king. And David received a promise from God. David, one of your descendants is going to be greater than you, and his kingdom will never end. Jesus is that ultimate son of David. Not just that, he's the son of Abraham. Now, what does that have to do with the genealogy? Here's what that has to do. Remember the promise given to Abraham all the way back in Genesis. Now, here's the world part, right? Abraham, through one of your descendants, right? One of your descendants, the whole world will be blessed. Matthew begins by saying, the Savior, King, ultimate King forever, the one through whom the whole world will be blessed, he's arrived. And his name is Jesus. Jesus comes from the right line. But then the genealogy, if you read through it, it takes a bunch of twists and turns that kind of don't make sense. First of all, and usually, look, I didn't make this up. This is how it used to be. Only men get listed in the genealogy. But when you read this genealogy, there are five women mentioned. Tamar, Rahab, Ruth, Bathsheba, she's not named, right? Uh, Wife of Uriah, and Mary. Why in the world would they mention women? Oh, not just that. Usually, only Jews get mentioned in a Jewish genealogy, but a number of people mentioned in the genealogy aren't Jews. There are Canaanites that are mentioned. A Moabite's mentioned. What's going on? Not just that. 
now, here's a resume question. If you're filling out your resume to get into college or get a job, do you, do you include all the times you screwed up? Do you include your fail? Well, you know, I flunked English four times. You don't include any of that stuff, right? That's how genealogies work, too. You didn't put into genealogy anything. But when you read this genealogy, there are a bunch of misfits in there. There are a bunch of outcasts. There are people that don't seem to fit. There are adulterers in the list, prostitutes in the list, sinners in the list, outcasts in the list. You know what Matthew's doing and what God does through the genealogy? Here's what he says. Jesus, the Savior of the world, the King of the universe, he comes from outcasts and sinners for outcasts and sinners. You read the rest of Matthew's gospel. Who does Jesus call? Outcasts and sinners. Who's in the auditorium with us this morning? Outcasts and sinners. And what's the genealogy say? Jesus comes from outcasts and sinners for outcasts and sinners. Matthew tees up God in the world right up front. Not just that, a couple chapters later, Jesus now in ministry calls his first disciples. He sees a few fishermen, right? Peter, Andrew, James, and John, they're out fishing. Jesus walks up and says, hey, guys, um, leave your nets. Come follow me. They immediately drop their nets and follow. But notice, in the very verse that he says that, come follow me, he then says, I'm going to send you to fish for people. That's disciple and apostle together, right? He calls the disciples. What are disciples? They're students. They're learners. The best synonym in our day would be an apprentice. An apprentice has to learn some things, but the skills are practiced, right? They need to apply those things. These apprentices are not called just to learn the skills. They're called then to go. Jesus calls them in, and he sends them out. And you know what? If you look at the fishermen that he calls... They're average. There's nothing spectacular. Kind of surprising, actually. They're average or below average in who he calls. Yeah, after all, if you're going to start a movement, you don't call four fishermen to start, right? You call people that are prominent, people that are well-connected. Oh, yeah, a few chapters later in chapter 9, we read that he also calls a tax collector. Now, Matthew, who wrote this gospel, is that tax collector. As Jesus went on from there, he saw a man named Matthew sitting at the tax collector's booth. What did he say? Same thing he said to the fishermen. Follow me. And Matthew got up and followed him. Jesus does not only call the average, Jesus calls the despicable. Tax collectors back then were outcasts. Tax collectors were hated. They worked for the enemy. They worked for the Roman government. And the Romans had their boot on the neck of the Jews. I mean, here's Matthew. He's a traitor. Jesus says, come follow me. The despised, the despicable, the average, and the surprising. He calls them in to follow, but then he sends them out to go with the message. You'll see that theme throughout the book. Come and follow me. Now go go and speak for me. We'll see that in the rest of the book. In the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus now gives us two metaphors. And the metaphors describe what disciples are supposed to do. Jesus says, you are the salt of the earth and the light of the world. Now, that's our role, by the way, right? We are to be salt and we are to be light. Now, you've got to understand something about the assumption behind the metaphors. 
What's the assumption behind the metaphors? The world is decaying. And the world is in darkness. You don't need salt back in the ancient world if the object wasn't going to... You don't put salt on a rock. You don't put salt on a tree. You put salt on meat without refrigeration because it's going to decay. You put salt on something in our world to season it so it tastes better. Salt preserves. Salt seasons. It brings out the best in other things. What are we to be? We're to be salt preserving our culture, preserving our world that is decaying at a rapid rate, right? Just look around, watch the news today, it's decaying. We're to be a preserving agent, bringing out the best in other things. And here's the tricky part, here's the part that is really uncomfortable. In order for salt to do its work, it has to lose itself in order to do its work. When you put salt on the vegetables, you put salt on the steak, salt melts, it kind of goes into, and it's gone. Salt loses itself for the sake of others, to bring out the best. Salt loses itself to postpone decay. Look at Jesus, the ultimate salt, lost himself to bring out the best in us. And how about light? What does light do? The Kante assumption behind light is darkness. Light allows people to see the danger. Light allows people to avoid this and avoid that because they can see what's going on. But light also has a positive effect. It allows us to see beauty that you couldn't see without light. You couldn't see the beautiful flowers of spring, and I'm ready for those flowers, by the way. And you couldn't see the flowers of spring without the light of the sun that allows you to see them. We are to be light that lights up so people in the world can see the beauty of God's creation, the beauty of the gospel, and we lose ourselves to preserve and to bring out the best in other things. Salt and light. That's what disciples are called to, right in Matthew's gospel. Well, as you keep reading, you come across um, another picture, and that is it's about harvest and workers. Harvest and workers. In chapter 9, Jesus is uh, traveling along and he says, uh, well, I'll read it to you. Here's what he says. When he saw the crowds, right, he sees all the people, he had compassion on them because they were harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. He sees the people, right? That there are people in the world, in our, in our community, in our frame of reference. He sees them and they're harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. Now, you've probably heard me say this numerous times and you see it all over the Bible and it's crystal clear right here. If they're harassed and helpless, self-help won't help. They're helpless. Matthew, Jesus does not say, oh, the crowd's out there, they're harassed and helpless, therefore, go tell them to follow their hearts. No, no, no. They are harassed and helpless. They need someone outside of themselves to lead them to nourishment. They need something outside of themselves to bring life and healing and direction. Like sheep, need a shepherd outside of themselves. You don't say to the sheep, okay, here you are on your own. Go find a good pasture this afternoon. Good luck with that. 
And don't go near that cliff, but you're on your own. Go find water. No, the sheep, harassed and helpless, need a shepherd. People in our culture, without Jesus, they don't need to follow their heart. They need to be pointed to the good shepherd, and they need to follow him. That's what disciples are to do. So the assumption is they're harassed and helpless. Self-help won't help. Jesus is the only help. And our responsibility is to point people that are harassed and helpless to the good shepherd that will lead them to nourishment, lead them to life, lead them to protection, lead them to provision. Jesus, the good shepherd, does all of that. Disciples, just pointing people to the good shepherd. Now, it's kind of interesting when he says they're harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. And then he says, okay, they're harassed and helpless, self-help won't help, just like sheep need a shepherd. Hey, I'm the, I'm the good shepherd, guys. Then, G, then Jesus says, now, I want you to pray. Here's what disciples are to do. I want you to pray and ask the Lord of the harvest to send out workers into the harvest. So our responsibility isn't just point people to go check. It's to pray that God will raise up lots of people to go into the harvest and point people to the good shepherd. But I love chapter 10. And you know, sometimes the breaks in the chapters in the Bible make, 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 it, make, make us misread stuff. So at the end of chapter nine, Jesus looks out at the crowds. He sees the people like sheep, harassed and helpless, point to the good shepherd. And I want you to pray, guys. Pray that God will send workers into the harvest. And then in chapter 10 of Matthew, he sends them out. Isn't that great? In a sense, Jesus is saying, they're harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. You pray, and by the way, now go be an answer to your own prayer. Right? You've just prayed that people would go into the harvest. Now you go into the harvest. Pray for others to go, oh, and answer your own prayer by going yourself. That's pretty cool, isn't it? Don't allow the chapter break between 9 and 10 to cause you to break your reading because Jesus sends those that, he, um, that he's just said that they need to pray. Well, a little further, uh, we read uh, what's often called the good neighbor command or the great command. We have the great command and great commission, and they're both in Matthew, by the way. So here's how the great command comes to be. A teacher, a religious leader, walks up to Jesus and he says, hey, Jesus, look, there are a whole lot of commands in the Old Testament, like 600. I can't memorize all them. Um, just boil it down for me. What is like the number one command? I think I can wrap my mind and I can fulfill one. Just give me one command. Jesus, oh, I, I got you covered. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and love your neighbors yourself. He, he can't stop, right? Just like the three relationships, love God, but part of loving God is loving people. You can't love God and not love people. If you're genuinely loving people, you gotta be loving God or your love for people is probably selfishly motivated somehow. Love God and love people, they have to go together. Now, a number of people raise questions and we have a question actually raised in Luke when the great command's given and uh, like, because they wanted to weasel out of it the way we often do, right? So immediately the, uh, the person who asked the question says, uh, yeah, but who's my neighbor? And then Jesus tells the parable, the good Samaritan, right? The slimy Samaritan. So what's the point? Jesus is saying, your neighbor is anyone in your proximity. Your neighbor is anyone you cross paths with. 
Your neighbor may be those, all those people that live in your development or live in your apartment building or live in your townhouse. They're your neighbors. They live near you. But your neighbors are also the people that wait on you at Starbucks, the people when you go to a restaurant that wait on the table, the people that you know, the people in your church, the people that you run across, the people in your sphere and network. They're your neighbors. And what are you to do? You're to love God and love them. Now, rather than just kind of leave it as vague as that, you know, back in Jesus' day, um, in some ways it was easier because uh, you crossed paths with your neighbors and you had to interact with them all the time. Most people worked from home. They worked in their field. They were always with their neighbors. We've conveniently devised ways in our culture to never even have to see our neighbors. We have garage door openers, right? We, uh, we walk up, we slip in. We never have to talk to our neighbors. We never see our neighbors. And so I've got a little list here of things that you need to do to love your neighbor, right? Uh, very simple thing. You don't even need to write these down. First of all, here, here's a really important one for some of you. Learn your neighbor's names. You know, I'd be willing to bet, and I'm, I'm guilty too, right? I'd be willing to bet that if I were to walk around the room, I'd be willing to bet that most of you could not name the 10 families that live nearest you. You probably couldn't name the people that wait on you regularly. Learn their names. That's a good first step, right? You know you're loving somebody if you know their name. Pray for them. Pray for them. Oh, yeah. Ask them questions, right? Seek them out. You know, go when you see your neighbor going to get, go get your mail when they're getting their mail. Get the trash cans together. Ask questions. Oh, here's one. Practice the golden rule. How's that? You know, treat your neighbors the way you want to be treated. Um, if you would like your neighbor, you know, next snowstorm to sweep your driveway, well, you sweep theirs today. Or it's already done, hopefully, right? Um, if you want them to take care of your grass when you're on vacation, you volunteer to take care, to practice the golden rule. Now, some of you, there's going to be the hard step. Some of you are going to have to forgive a neighbor. And maybe your neighbor doesn't, in your mind, deserve forgiveness. You know what? You didn't either. Some of you need to forgive a neighbor. Forgive the neighbor. Just like Jesus took care of all your sin, it would sure be good for you to overcome, for you to treat lightly, for you to not hold against them how they've sinned against you. Look for opportunities to bless your neighbor. So you got a little bit of an assignment. Well, how does Matthew end his gospel then? And again, there are lots of other passages we could have looked at, God in the world. How does he end the gospel? He ends it with what I'm going to call his mission that he calls our co-mission, right? Uh, we don't get to dream up a mission. We get to be partners in Jesus' mission. You probably heard me say this numerous times. It's still true. God doesn't give a rip about your plans, Right? I mean, how many, how many of our prayers are consumed at, okay, Lord, here's my plan. Please help, help. I'm not saying God's not interested in that. He really doesn't give a rip about your plans. He wants you to get in step with his plan. He's not interested in your mission. He has a mission. And he's invited you to make his mission part of your mission. And so we need to adopt that mission as our mission. And you all know the, right, the Great Commission, all authority in heaven and earth has been given to me. Therefore, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them, teaching them. Um, but you probably didn't know this. At the beginning of chapter 28, the women show up at the tomb. Do you know what the angel says to the women? Now, this should be very familiar as soon as I tell you. 
The angel says, come and see. Uh, We heard that all the way through the book, right? The angel says, come and see where he was. He's not there anymore. The Savior, King of the universe, Son of David, Son of Abraham, is alive forever. Come and see. Then, at the end of the chapter, now go. That's always the two sides of the same. That's the rhythm. Come and see. Go and tell. Come. That's like breathing in the Bible. So when we talk about three relationships, all we're saying is, follow Jesus. And when you follow Jesus, you're following the only Savior God has ever given for us. You're following the King that is ruling today and will rule forever. The values and the priorities that you live out as you follow him are never going to change. You'll be loving people in his community. We call that the church. And you will have adopted his mission, and you'll make that your mission. You'll be in co-mission with Jesus, fulfilling that. We've got a couple great examples this morning of how we are present, participating, and partnering with people doing just that in our world. Let me pray, and the interviewer and ease can come up. Let's pray. Lord, we give you thanks that you remind us over and over again of what we're called to. You give us pictures, you give us metaphors, you give us commands, you give us words, you give us examples, and you sent Jesus to to do what we couldn't do. Lord, I pray that you would help us through your spirit to follow closely, and as we follow closely, we will be coming regularly to see, and we will be going to tell. May that be the rhythm of our life as we live out our relationship with God in the world. We pray in Christ's name. Amen.